So we've had a lot of dogs in our family. One of them, about 20 years ago, we had a dog named Slick, who was a black lab. We were getting ready to go on an extended vacation. We were going to be gone three weeks. And we had a veterinarian in the church that I pastored at the time who was going to keep our dog. And there, a little medical procedure she was going to do while we were away. So we get back from our vacation, and she said, that went fine, but I want to talk to you about something I found. And Sarah and I went to her office, and she put the dog's x-rays on the screen of his rear hips. And she said, according to this x-ray, your dog has really severe hip dysplasia, probably shouldn't even be walking. And I said, I don't know. I throw the ball and the dog runs to the other end of the yard, picks it up and brings it back and wags his tail and seems to be very happy. And she said something to me that I've never forgotten. She said, well, I guess it's a good thing dogs don't run on their x-rays. And I well, that makes sense. Um, between those two, basically, it's not that I was, we were ignoring what those x-rays said or, or dismissing it, but I'm not going to take that over what I'm experiencing and the story that my light dog is telling of loving to go run and go for walks. And I, I've transferred that into a lot of work I've done with people over the years, too, because sometimes we can, we can focus on things that we want to know and miss our story and miss what's happening I sometimes talk to people trying to find direction in life, and often they've done all the assessments, the Enneagram, the DISC profile, their Myers-Briggs, their spiritual gift survey, and all that has a place. I'm not dismissing any of that, but the question I ask is, well, what's your life say? What's your story? How are you living? What are other people saying about you that, that will uh, substantiate this? Because our story is powerful. Our story is probably the most powerful thing that we have in terms of sharing with other people. It grounds our identity. Think about it, when someone dies and we're getting ready to go to the memorial service or we're having that dinner afterwards, what are we doing? We're telling stories. We're pulling the photo albums out. We're, we're talking about the person and the stories we had. In fact, I think it's fair to say we can't know someone apart from story because our story is how we interact with them. Uh, at least if there's any affection, uh, we can know of someone, but story brings us together. And the incident we're looking at in Paul's life today demonstrates the importance of telling story, even as we communicate about our faith, as we communicate what we believe, we do it best in story. We're covering the end of Acts chapter 21 and all but the last verse of chapter 22, if you want to open your Bibles there. The apostle completed his three major missionary journeys now. He shared the message of salvation, planted a number of churches, strengthened them. He's back in Jerusalem last week. We left him in Jerusalem where he delivered the offering to the church there. And the believers there were concerned because there had been this rumor that he was really minimizing the the ceremony and the, the rites that were in Judaism. So they wanted him to participate in the ceremony for some men that were fulfilling a Nazarite vow, and Paul went through his own purification for them to help them to understand how much he was committed to Judaism. In fact, he actually, and we're going to see this today, would see that what he was doing and the way he was living out Christ is the truest way to live out Judaism. It's, it's to encounter Jesus through that. But then a group of, uh, of Jews from Asia began to stir up the crowd, we learned last week, accusations of him defiling the temple. Paul was arrested, they said away with him. And so he was being taken to prison and he asked the prisoners or the guards that were guarding him if he could talk to them. 
He mentioned something in Greek, and they, well, you speak Greek, and they thought he maybe was this man who had recently led a revolt, and there's a extra biblical account, Josephus, who's a first century historian, tells us about an Egyptian who had a considerable following and stirred up people against Rome and uh, led them out into the wilderness, and the Romans chased them down and, and attacked them, and, but the leader escaped. And so this guard thought that this was Paul. And Paul said, no, that's not who I am. And then Paul shared with them what he wanted to ask them. So let's look at Acts 21 verses 39 to 40. No, Paul replied, I'm a Jew and a citizen of Tarsus of Cilicia, which is an important city. Please let me talk to these people. The commander agreed. So Paul stood on the stairs and motioned to the people to be quiet. Soon a deep silence enveloped the crowd and he addressed them in their own language in Aramaic. So Paul wanted to address the crowd to establish his commitment to Judaism. Uh, apparently the ceremony that he participated in wasn't enough to convince them. Uh, this was one of many defense speeches that Paul's gonna give through the rest of Acts as he goes to different um, settings. Paul presents this here. Here his, his testimony is his defense. So he's not listing what he believes. He's not trying to argue or win a debate. He's gonna share his story. And I wanna draw some principles from this because I believe our testimonies, our stories of what God has done in our lives are the strongest defense we have for the faith in Jesus Christ. It's the strongest defense. And Paul's gonna show that. First, if you're gonna share your story, you need to speak the language of your hearers. Let me read verse, verses one and two again. Brothers and esteemed fathers, Paul said, listen to me as I offer my defense. When they heard him speaking their own language, the silence was even greater. He began right off the bat, brothers and esteemed fathers. Now these people were, were wanting to kill him a few minutes ago. And, and he's respectfully addressing them, which is, Something that we need to understand because a big part of sharing your story, a big part of engaging with people that are far from God, a big part of engaging with people that are even opposing God is to find an area of connection. And oftentimes that's to show them a measure of respect, regardless of whether we agree with them or they're opposing the faith or what they're saying about God. And Paul shows that here, brothers and fathers. And then we immediately notice that he switched to Aramaic to address the crowd. So he talked to the Roman soldiers in Greek and now he's talking in Aramaic so that they would hear him. And apparently when they heard him, they calmed down kind of surprised that he would speak to them in their own language. Now in Paul's case, it was an actual language, but for us, we can figuratively ask if we're speaking the language of our hearers. And we need to be challenged about this in the church a lot because we, we can get our own vernacular, we can build our own language, we have our own terms, we understand what those mean inside, and then we go out to the world or we're talking to someone at work or we're talking to our neighbor, and all of a sudden those terms have no meaning at all. Too often, we don't respect and talk to people in ways that reflect our respect and knowledge of their cultural heritage or their values, their political views, their history, their openness to spiritual topics at all. Too often we attempt to defend the faith in ways that miss people, that, that instead of respect them, maybe disrespects them. 
the, the approach can be, and this is a harsh way to say it, but we're right, they're wrong. Evangelism is helping them to understand how wrong they are and that we can help them be right. And when we do that, it comes from a very arrogant kind of way. It's like, well, no, we, we need to respect them as image bearers of God who are seeking answers and may actually be able to help us and teach us something about life, teach us something even about faith, and then we're sharing our story with them. Next, if you're going to effectively bear witness to God's work in your life, you need to describe your need for the gospel. Paul does that in this chapter, verses one through five. Brothers and esteemed fathers, Paul said, listen to me as I offer my defense. When they heard him speaking in their own language, the silence was even greater. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia. And I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you today. And I persecuted the followers of the way, hounding some to death, arresting both men and women, throwing them in prison, the high priest and the whole council of the elders can testify to this. For I received letters from them to our Jewish brothers in Damascus, authorizing me to bring the followers of the way from there to Jerusalem in chains to be punished. So it was Paul's piety, Paul's Jewish piety that was called into question here. And he starts by defending himself and articulating his resume at, at the same time, kind of subtly, planting seeds of the emptiness of their objection to him. Again, he recognized who his audience was. If we're gonna be effective at sharing our story, we need to understand who we're talking to in the moment and respect and honor them. So this helped him to start his story at a place where they could hear and relate to what he was saying. In fact, in a way, he's gonna say, I was right there where you are. I was trying to kill people like me. So I know what you're feeling. I know the fear. I know the threat. Then he follows a common ancient pattern for describing the formative years, your birth, your rearing, and your education. So while he was, in, he was born in Tarsus, apparently his family moved to Jerusalem while he was a little boy, and he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a Jewish rabbi and a member of the Sanhedrin. Paul makes it clear that he was taught to strictly adhere to Jewish customs and to Jewish laws. In this case, he says he was zealous for God. But his zeal went far beyond most Jews because most zealous Jews don't lead campaigns to exterminate people but he worked to imprison and even kill Jews who were following Jesus' teaching. He worked with the high priest and the Jewish leaders to accomplish this eradication of the message of Jesus by punishing, imprisoning, and even killing the followers of Jesus. And it wasn't some renegade campaign. He was doing it in conjunction with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. So they were sanctioning his work and what he was doing and, and so he was, there was nobody wanting to purify Judaism like they were doing it to him like he was prior to that. I don't know what a modern day uh, comparable picture or image is. Maybe it's a church shooter to think about some of the news stories in recent years of someone who barges into a church with a weapon and starts shooting. 
I mean, that, that's the kind of reaction that the, the Christians, the Bible, or the, the followers of Jesus, and we weren't called Christians yet, we'll get to that in a minute, but the followers of the way would have responded to, to this guy because he was wanting to kill them. I was where you were. That's what he was telling them. Twice in these verses, he refers to the Christians as the way, followers of the way. I wanna camp there for a minute because remember the label Christian wasn't given to the followers of the way until Acts chapter 11 in Antioch. And it's significant because Paul is making the case that the way is the way of Jesus and the way of Jesus is the most Jewish, Jewish path. This is the way, it's the way of life. It's the way of salvation. It's the way of God. It's the way God wants us to follow the path of Jesus. He was fighting against it, but later he realized this is the way of life. And I wanna pause there because we get tripped up sometimes in our terminology and it's good to hold a mirror up to how our terminology is even used. We talk about Christians as being the church or people that are believers, but that's kind of a world religion title, isn't it? That's kind of a, we're Christians. That, that's as a different from being Jewish or being Hindu or being Islamic. We're Christians. It's a world religion kind of label. And then inside, we talk about being brothers and sisters or believers, don't we? We're believers. That's kind of our inside language of how we identify ourselves. And then in in common way of thinking, unfortunately, in the church, then the disciple, we almost look at disciple as being, that's the, you know, the high level, you know, special elite regiment of believers who are really out there doing the, the hard work of winning people for Jesus and spreading the gospel. But that's not what the Bible teaches, does it? The Bible says, Jesus came to show us the way and everyone who by faith follows the way is what? A disciple. A disciple who has been given the wonderful truths of scripture that show us what the path of discipleship is. The way of discipleship is the way of Jesus. It's the way to care for one another. It's the way of understanding how God interacts with us and saves us. It's the redemptive way of Christ. It's the way of living a a simple, holy life to impact the world for him. The whole canon of scripture guides us in the way. And that's a vital part of Paul's story. He wasn't defending a doctrinal position. He was defending a way of living that God calls people to. Now, a vital part of Paul's story is how he persecuted the church. And in so doing, he showed his need for the grace and mercy of Christ, which is what we also need to do as we're sharing our testimony. He makes direct reference or allusion to this in his letters, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17 is one example of this. I thank Jesus Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people, but God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that comes from Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example in great patience with even the worst sinners. 
then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God, amen. That was how Paul lived. He knew his story. He knew his need for the gospel and he knew what that cost him. It cost Christ his life and now he's living his whole life for Jesus. And likewise, as we share our stories, we need to remind ourselves and remind others of our need for salvation, of of where we stood before Christ saved us. Now, for some of you, it might be like a true crime episode like Paul's. I, I recently, I work sometimes with churches that are having struggles and challenges and was, and was invited to a church in another state earlier, early, last month. And when I go do that, I, I interview a lot of people in the church and I spend two days, you know, eight hours a day, just interviewing people and half hour interviews, hearing their story. And, and I, I got there the first day and I saw the list of people of names I was gonna be talking to. And one of the names was a man named Lurch. Lurch. Hmm. Never met a man named Lurch before. I'm wondering what this man named Lurch is going to be like. And so uh, when it came time for Lurch to come in, Lurch came in and he sat down and he was kind of a tender-hearted, fun kind of guy, big beard, uh, kind of rough looking, but kind and uh, sat down and, and I asked the first question you ask someone who's named Lurch is, what's Lurch about? And he started to tell me his story and that Lurch was his name when he was in an outlaw biker gang. And for years, he lived in the outlaw biker world. And Lurch was his name there when he was a biker. And his wife came to faith in Jesus Christ. And over years of watching his wife and seeing her faith and watching and seeing what God had done to change her, he would mock, he would ridicule, he would look. And then he got curious and then he started understand this is real and then he talked to his wife about it and eventually he gave his heart to Jesus and God transformed him and now he he's still called Lurch because he takes his bike and a bunch of other guys and he goes back into that world where you can go if your name's Lurch and talk to them about Jesus and share with them the story what an amazing amazing way to live and then some of you might be like my wife and I we we grew up in a church with Christian parents and went to a church that had great Sunday school and children's ministry and we heard the gospel of Jesus from the time we were this big and we don't ever remember not believing in Jesus because we were, was instilled in us. Which I, I love that about our church here. If you're in our Kid Connection ministry, your kids are, or in our Awana, isn't it amazing? That from the ground up, it's like, this is where Jesus is. And it doesn't mean there aren't struggles and you grow to understand that and figure that out later. But it does help us to see that it's not a dramatic conversion story or kind of a boring conversion story because the Bible actually emphasizes our heart posture of sin or our heart condition of sin way more than it, than it does our behavior or our conduct, the things we do. In the church, we tend to focus more on the acts of sin. The Bible It doesn't ignore them, but the Bible focuses on the heart condition, which is the same for a five-year-old kid in Sunday school as it is for Lurch, the outlaw biker, right? It's like we all stand in need of the gospel because we're separated by this condition of sin. Then another essential part of the effectively telling our story 
is to tell about your encounter with Jesus. And this is kind of a long section, but I, I do want to read it because I think it's important for us to hear Paul recount his conversion story. As, so I'll start with verse six. As I was on the road leading, approaching Damascus about noon, a very bright light from heaven suddenly shone down around me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. The voice replied, I am Jesus the Nazarene, the one who you are persecuting. The people with me saw a light, but they didn't understand the voice speaking to me. I asked, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told everything you are to do. I was blinded by the intense light and had to be led by the hand to Damascus by my companions. A man named Ananias lived there. He was a godly man, deeply devoted to the law, well regarded by all the Jews of Damascus. He came and stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. At that very moment, I could see. Then he told me the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and hear him speak. For you are to be his witness, telling everyone what you have seen and heard. What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. After I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple and fell into a trance. I saw a vision of Jesus saying to me, hurry, leave Jerusalem, for the people here won't accept your testimony. But Lord, I argued, they certainly know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And I was in complete agreement when your witness Stephen was killed. I stood by and kept the coats they took off when they stoned him. But the Lord said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, this is one of three accounts of Paul's transformation story. The first one in Acts chapter nine, which Luke narrates in the third person, then here, and then we're gonna hear him tell the story again later before King Agrippa. Now, there's some variations, and I think the variations are because of the different circumstances. So in this passage, to a Jewish audience, he pays very close attention to his Jewishness, and he pays very close attention to Ananias and to Ananias being not just a follower of the way, but also very well respected in the Jewish community. Later, when he's before Agrippa in chapter 26, he doesn't even mention Ananias. And I think, again, it's not because he's mixing up his stories or making things up, but he's telling the parts of his story that are going to help the people who he's listening to to understand. Verses six through 11 are parallel to chapter nine, verses three to eight. On the road to Damascus, this bright light shines and knocks him down. And the voice says, Paul, why do you persecute me? And it was Jesus identifying himself with the victims of Paul's persecution, the victims of this campaign he had against followers of the way. At verse 10, significantly, he recounts that incident, affirming Jesus as Lord. And keep in mind, in the moment, back in Acts 9, he didn't know who he was calling to. He didn't know who this was. He didn't know who blinded him. But now he's looking back and saying, I was talking to the Lord. I was talking to the Lord who I had been persecuting. I had been trying to stop and he had encountered me here. Then he tells them about Ananias, a devout follower of Jesus. There's nothing here about the hesitation that we read in, in chapter nine, but the reaction of the original followers of the way when he encountered Jesus would have been fear and disbelief. Paul's testimony here shows that transformation is not just a private 
personal matter. We talk about a personal relationship with Jesus, and that's in the Bible. We do have a personal relationship, but it's not just that. And Paul's testimony shows of something greater than just him having a private encounter with Jesus. We like to think our stories are are our own, but they're not. Our stories are always told, at least partly, by someone else. In our family, we were uh, excited to celebrate the birth of our first grandbaby, Sarah and I, in, in October. Many of you have been praying for her. Thank you. She's doing much better because she spent the first few months of her life in NICU. So our grandbaby, Isabel, spent the first few months of her life in the NICU, but she can't tell that story. She won't remember it. We tell that story, and her parents are going to tell that story, but she can't tell that story, but it's her story, right? And that's true of all of us. There are parts of our story that other people must tell. There are parts of our story that other people feed into. Kurt Thompson, who's a psychiatrist and an author, I really encourage you to, to get to know him. He has a podcast called Being Known. He, he, he talks about neuro, neuropsychology and discipleship and that intersection of how those meet. And Being Known is his podcast, which would be a good introduction. But he talks about story a lot. He says, our stories are always told collaboratively. Even when I take on more agency in my life, he said, we never, we only ever tell stories collaboratively. I am the lead author of a novel with lots of other contributing authors. And that's how Paul is telling his story. Yeah, here's my story, but this is the Ananias part. This is the parts that the other believers played. We're always telling our story and we need to understand there are collaborators that are always reading in and there are some people that are telling parts of our story we couldn't tell without them. We need them to help us tell our story. So as we're watching Paul's story unfold after that encounter with Jesus, we see how God uses other believers in our lives. In your Bible studies, in your groups, in your classes, I hope you're taking time to tell stories. I hope First Free is a storytelling community that all around this church, we're just telling stories. Often our stories give special attention to the authors, the co-authors who've contributed. Now it might feel very natural for you. Some of you might be natural storytellers. Some of you might feel kind of weird. You're not really used to telling story. You don't even know if you'd like it. And you don't know if you have a story worth telling and would you want someone else to hear it? I would argue that we've been made for story. We've been made in a story, to tell a story, to engage with other people in story. The world is actually more understandable when we engage it as a narrative instead of some stale history One of the reasons I believe that we in our culture struggle with story stems from the Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th century when intellectualism and reason were put way up here on the priority. This is where we know what's real and story was put way down here, subservient to that. And we need to say no. Story is how we communicate truth. That doesn't mean we're not reasonable or not intellectual, but story is a valid way of communicating truth. Many years ago, and this is so long ago, uh, before churches had websites, 
Remember back then, you'd have a brochure that explained your church? I remember one church that I knew about had a brochure for their church. And I picked it up and started looking at it. And instead of having all of the programs and the times and the doctrinal statement, it was 20 pages of personal testimonies of how people in that church have been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. Nothing about what to do to get involved, nothing about how we do church or what our doctrinal statement is. It's just stories of people that have been transformed by Jesus. Can you imagine? I'm not advocating for this. We probably could, and we, we talk among our team about doing more of this, but if someone went to the First Free website, and instead of it being, here's our doctrinal statement, here's all the programs and all the events, it's like, Here's my story, here's your story, here's your story, here's your story. Here's what Jesus does to change us. I'll find out how to get plugged into that church, right? I mean, if I know there's something that's happening, that's what story does. So I encourage you to tell your story. I encourage you in your groups. If you're in a small group, Sunday morning group, men's group, women's group, Bible studies, whatever it is, even if you're not the leader, say, we need to tell our stories more. Stop your, stop your study for a while and take the next eight weeks and just listen to each other's personal testimonies of stories. It's a way to practice telling our stories. Use the pattern Paul gives here, describing your need for the gospel, how you encountered Christ, and then what he's done for you. There are a lot of other patterns. This isn't real complicated. Here's one outline that you could use to tell your story. You identify a theme. What, what is it, a topic? And that theme might, might relate to the people that you're talking to. Are you talking to your neighbor who doesn't know anything about God and maybe is actually skeptical? Are you, talking about, are you talking to people that just need encouraged because they're going through challenges? So identify a theme or focus in a couple sentences. That may vary. And then talk about your life before Christ. Or if you're like me and you can't remember life before Christ, talk about how you kind of grew into that and wrestled with that and began to understand and own the transformation that Jesus Christ does in your life. How you came to Christ, your life since coming to Christ. And then wrap up with some kind of summary or invitation for next steps. And, and that might just be, that's my story. If you ever wanna talk more, let me know. That might be the next step. That might be the invitation. Or it might be anything that I've say, have just shared that resonates with you. Or, that's my story, and, and you ask a pointed question of where they are in their story. If you're not in a group, I just wanna remind you, you heard it on the announcements earlier today, that we're gonna have a group's fair in the lobby next Sunday, right outside the auditorium here, where some of our groups will have space for new people, or you can go out there if you just wanna talk about getting plugged into an existing group or in a new group. If you're not in a group, please take time next week after one of our services and talk to the people out there so that we can get everybody. We want everybody to be involved in groups here at First Free because that's where we're doing life on life. We, we often say life change happens in circles, not rows. We like this kind of stuff, but life change happens in circles, right? When we get around, we're looking at each other and we're wrestling with things. And the next time someone asks you what you believe, the next time someone asks you what you believe or the next time you hear someone accusing the church of being the problem or full of a bunch of hypocrites, instead of defending with a doctrinal position or a doctrinal truth or instead of arguing on the basis of reason, try sharing your story. 
Try sharing how God has changed you. And then beyond the human contributors to your story, Paul's speech illustrates how God takes the initiative to interact and intervene in our story, right? I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis in Surprised by Joy when he posed that if Hamlet and Shakespeare would ever meet, it must be Shakespeare's doing. Think about that. If, if Hamlet and Shakespeare would ever meet, it must be Shakespeare's doing. Hamlet could do nothing to initiate that. Lewis further explains, Shakespeare could in principle make himself appear as the author within the play, write himself into the dialogue so Hamlet could meet him in the play as both a character in the play and the author of the play. Isn't that a beautiful metaphor for what God has done? We can't know God. We can't take the initiative to do that. But he wrote himself into the play he wrote himself into the play through the incarnation. And he writes himself into the play of Paul's story on the Damascus Road. And he writes himself into the play of our story when we encounter him in that personal way. So if you're here today or if you're watching online and you have not experienced God intervening in your story, you've not experienced that transformation, today can be the day. The Lord is trying to get your attention. If by nothing else, then you're hearing this story today. God is trying to say, I want to be in your life. I want to change you. I want to transform you. I want to give you purpose and meaning and rescue you from all the pursuits of this world that don't give you any fulfillment. Your past is not an obstacle. That's what the cross of Jesus is for. So don't leave today without talking to someone and embracing God's purpose in your life. Talk to someone who you know who is a follower of the way of Jesus. Talk to any of us that are up front. Anyone who wears a lanyard around here ought to be able to help you if you just find someone with a lanyard because that means they have some role here at the church and just say, hey, I, I wanna know more about how Jesus can be a part of my story. So back to our text in verses 17 to 20, Paul describes a vision that he had in the temple when he returned to Jerusalem. It's interesting, that part is not in Acts 9, so, but Acts 9 doesn't necessarily have to tell us everything. But Paul went to the temple, and this would undoubtedly reinforce his denial that he defiled the temple, which is what he was being charged with. And then he protests that given his past, uh, he said, verse 21, I will go, God said to him, I will send you far away to the Gentiles, which leads to the, to the last principle that we need to be aware of. You need to be ready for people to react when you share your story. Sometimes they'll react positively, sometimes they won't. They did not to Paul in this, in this situation. This is another long section, but I think it's important for us to read. So uh, hang with me as we go through verses 21 to 29. The Lord said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened until Paul said that, when then they all began to shout, away with such a fellow, he isn't fit to live. They yelled, threw their coats, threw off their coats, tossed handfuls of dust in the air. The commander brought Paul inside and ordered him, lashed with whips to make him confess his crime. He wanted to find out why the crowd had become so furious. When they tied Paul down to lash him, Paul said to the officer standing there, is it legal for you to whip a Roman citizen who has not even been tried? When the officer heard this, he went to the commander and asked, what are you doing? This man is a Roman citizen. 
So the commander went over to Paul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I certainly am, Paul replied. I am too, the commander muttered, and it cost me plenty. Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. The soldiers who were about to interrogate Paul quickly withdrew when they heard he was a Roman citizen, and the commander was frightened because he had ordered him bound and whipped. Now, why Paul added that last part, it poked at them and they responded, we don't know, but the crowd was already agitated with him and this growing Jewish nationalism was looking for a target and Paul gave it to them. And so now they took him away and the Roman soldiers were prepared to whip him and they used the leather thongs with glass and rocks tied into it and they were gonna beat him with that and that alone in the Roman system, uh, judicial system or punishment system would, would probably kill most people. In verse 25, he protested and exerted his Roman citizenship. And then the Roman officer stepped back because it would be illegal for them to do that to a Roman citizen without a trial. So in this passage alone, though Paul... Paul was thought to be an Egyptian at first, and then he spoke Greek, and then he spoke Aramaic, and now he pulls the citizen card. I'm sure these, the, the Roman guards were like, what do we do with this guy? He's kind of got everything that we're trying to figure out here. But one lesson that we can draw is Paul does not shy away from asserting his rights as a Roman citizen under the civil laws. He's not trusting in that, but he doesn't shy away from asserting his rights. I'm a Roman citizen, and this doesn't happen to Roman citizens. In a pluralistic society where there's public, the public arena is open, that shouldn't happen to people because of their religious convictions. Whenever I see parts of this, I, I feel like we need to really remember as churches that there, as Christians, that that's not the case for many, many Christians in our world. That in many countries, people don't have rights to exert. People can't say, I'm, 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 I have the right to believe what I believe. Open Doors reports that today, 317 million Christians face very high or extreme levels of persecution and discrimination because of their faith. Last year, 4,998 followers of Jesus worldwide were killed because of their faith. I encourage you, Take a moment and visit opendoors.org so that we can be reminded how we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters around the world who don't have rights to exert. If they're discovered as being Christians, they're gonna be put in prison, they may even be killed, and we need to be praying for them. We also recognize that Paul's faith, while foundational to his identity, doesn't exclude his Jewish heritage, nor does it minimize his standing as a Roman citizen. With integrity and confidence, though, he shared his story as a Roman citizen and as a Jew, he shared about the way what Jesus had done for him. This makes all the opposition all the more bitter. Remember what he shared a few weeks ago when we were in Acts chapter 20 to the Ephesian elders when he was leaving? But my life is worth nothing this is from Acts chapter 20. My life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. He used to be assigned to persecuting the church. Now the Lord has assigned him, spend the rest of your life telling this story of what I've been doing in you. We can be confident that God has assigned each of us that work as well. 
And the greatest tool, I believe, for us to share that is our stories. Let's pray and ask God to give us opportunity, even this week, to share our stories. God, thanks for creating a narrative throughout all of scripture that's a story, a story of your creation, a story of the fall, a story of how you redeem us through Christ. And thank you that you intervened in this world and wrote yourself into the story so that we can know Jesus Christ as our savior and that we can be a part of a church then that can take that message to the rest of the world. Help us to use our stories for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, now we have the privilege of partaking in the Lord's Supper or communion. I just want to give a few logistics first. Um, as the trays are passed, if you're a believer and follower of Jesus, please take a stack of two cups. And if you're not, feel free to let that tray pass. And the bottom cup has the bread and the top cup has the juice. And there are gluten-free wafers at the center of every tray. And then please hold on to these elements until everyone is served and we'll all take communion together. Well, a section of scripture we often refer to during this time of communion comes from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And in chapter 11, he writes, For what I received from the Lord, I pass also on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, it's given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And also after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink of it in remembrance of me. And then Paul writes, for every time you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, during this time of communion, we're remembering and retelling the redemptive story of Jesus. We're remembering him as he commanded and also pointing others to him. This is a great time where we can, much like John said, remind ourselves and others of our desperate need for the gospel of Jesus, for salvation in his death on our behalf. We proclaim that message that that is what offered us redemption and forgiveness. It's a great time to maybe think back through your own story and where you've seen God's grace throughout that story and, and thank him again for that. And also be in the story today. Where do you need his grace and forgiveness now? Maybe there's a sin issue you need to talk to him about. And this is also a good time to just ask him, how do you want me to tell this story that you've given me? And see how he uses that. Well, let's take a moment right now of just quiet reflection and prayer.
Well, it looks like everyone has been served now. So let's take a moment and remember that on the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink of it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the redemption that we have in Jesus. We thank you that you stepped into our world, into our story to save us but not just into the big picture of history, also into each one of our individual stories to redeem me. Jesus died for my sin and for all of our sin, Lord. We, we thank you for that. We thank you for your great love for us that you demonstrated on the cross. And Lord, pray that you would help us to share that love with others, share that story with other people so that more people can know about Jesus and how he can forgive them. We thank you and praise you in his name, amen.